Hello, I'm Natalie, your host of the Fertility Podcast, and welcome to episode 89. I'm getting so excited to reach the 100 mark. If this is your first podcast, massive welcome from me. If you found that you are suddenly researching your fertility because you've been and seen a specialist or your GP and you've been told that it's not going to be straightforward to start a family, just take a deep breath and be rest assured that you're not alone and that this podcast is hopefully going to be a really useful resource for you whether you're just starting out or maybe you've been on your journey for a while and you want some different information because there's loads out there um, but what I'm aiming to do is someone who's been through successful fertility treatment and has a background in, in broadcasting is make that information kind of easy to consume and the beauty of a podcast is that you can do that on the move. Now I speak to all sorts of people from experts within the facility field to people sharing their journeys and today's guest is somebody who I met on Twitter. She's an author, um, her name is Janita Lawrence and her book The Underachieving Ovary is her story from her journey. She's a real character based in South Africa and I'm sure you'll agree she's been on quite a journey that I'm sure you'll be interested to hear more about. So I'm now going to welcome Janita Lawrence, who is an author based in South Africa, and we're going to talk about her book, The Underachieving Ovary, which I have to say, from the range of different books that I've managed to read about different people's fertility journey, probably one of the most uh, entertaining, considering it's obviously quite an epic journey that you've been on. So Janita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Natalie. Lovely to be here. So, I mean, I can only, epic is the only way that I can start to describe this. And you had me hooked within the first few pages where you described your gynecologists as the BFG and you oh, yes. talking about a dildo cam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they're commonly known as dildo cams here in South Africa. <laughs> so... Did you write the book retrospectively or were you just kind of journaling as you were going through? Because it's quite a long time ago. It was like 2008, 2009. Is that right? Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yes. Or when you started trying. Yes. Um, it started um, actually with um, emails uh, because I found it very difficult. My family and friends used to keep on asking how the journey was going. And I found it very difficult to um, to keep everyone up to date all the time. It was quite painful for me. So I instead just, I, I'm a writer by nature. I've always been a writer. Instead, I sent them an email telling them um, how my latest doctor appointment had gone and what the prognosis was and all of that. And that was a lot easier for me uh, to deal with. And then it kind of went from there. I mean, I remember one day speaking to my dad and he said, no, a friend of his wants the next installment of the story. I'm like, it's not a story. <laughs> but that's kind of how, uh, how I started thinking about the book. I thought if other people are getting value from my experience, then it would maybe be a good thing to put all the emails together and turn it into a little book. And then the little book grew into something a bit bigger. And yeah, I mean, it it was kind of a journal in that way at, a, at the time, but it was definitely written retrospectively. Um, most of it was written retrospectively. Okay. So one of the first discoveries is you having this exchange where you discover that you have a heart-shaped uterus. And at this point, were you just having a general checkup when that was discovered? We had been trying for a year. And, um, you know, most of the the common um, advice is to wait. You've been trying for a year and then you go for help. So we had been trying for a year and we thought, let's just try. Let's just go and, and have a chat to the doctor 
and see if there's any kind of thing to talk about or any tests to be done. And that was that appointment. And you were told this information and were you then given, because I'm always keen to talk about the support that people are kind of offered when anything comes up as being abnormal. At this point, along with that whole, you've got an unusual shaped uterus. Were you told, okay, so this is probably going to be quite a challenge with what happens next. How about you start some counselling to guide you through all these different things that you're probably going to encounter was any of those kind of conversations had no no none of that um at that stage unfortunately it was so much uh, to deal with and to process i remember driving home that day and being completely on autopilot i don't remember the drive at all i just got home and i uh, thought you know I'd, i had no reason to believe I, I had a problem with my fertility and then all of a sudden it was my doctor saying um, that I, I shouldn't worry because it, it won't be impossible to fall pregnant. It'll just be difficult. And that was such a mind shift for me. It was it was quite traumatic. And no, there was no support at that stage. I actually had to seek out support after a few months because I realized I wasn't dealing with um, with the processing of my emotions. Because along with you trying to start a family and you've been told that there's an issue when I was reading you talking about your lifestyle and how generally you were, as soon as you said you had shoulder pain during your period, I thought endometriosis. But that's only because I've featured it in this podcast and I now understand it. So I had no idea. And in the UK, I don't know what the statistic is in South Africa, but in the UK, it's like one in 10 women are affected. And I had tried to do a whole thing, raising awareness. And so I felt for you because I was like, I know what she's got before you'd got to that point. And then you, <laughs> yeah, I wish, you I wish I'd known, yeah. <laughs> so tell me that. So you're basically, you're trying, how long had the, the, what you then learned was endometriosis? How long had that pain been going before you even discovered about you know, the issues that you're going to have conceiving? Well, the pain only really started when I went off the pill. So I'd say about six months off the pill. So six months into trying, the pain started coming. It was very slowly. It was very slow in the beginning and uh, mild and really nothing to worry about, I didn't think. Um, and then it just started hammering me every month. And then I thought, there's definitely something wrong here. And um, I went to a few different doctors and gynees and they all looked at me as if I was completely crazy. And I eventually was, de- I remember one day very, um, being very, very sore and not being able to work. So I just climbed into bed with my laptop and uh, Googled the symptoms. And there it was, diaphragmatic endometriosis. And I'd never heard of it before. I didn't even really know what endometriosis was, to be honest. Never mind diaphragmatic endometriosis. Because you're not even talking about, not that there's a bog standard endometriosis, but you've got a really rare type, haven't you? Yes. I mean, I have the standard type two, which I didn't know about until the surgery. But um, yeah, diaphragmatic endometriosis means that the the endometrial cells are actually on your diaphragm. So it hurts to breathe. And for some reason, you get referred pain and it goes to your shoulder. So, you know, I was going to my doctor saying, when I have my period, my shoulder hurts. And that's why they thought um, I was crazy. And, um, and it was a difficult thing to diagnose for them, I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, thank goodness for Google. I mean, I know doctors despair of people like me who diagnose themselves on Google, but, you know, it's, it's, it saved quite a, um, a lot of time on my journey, I'd say. You say they despair, but I also think when you're dealing with anything regarding your fertility, knowledge is power when it's your body that isn't performing and the more you can do, and that's the point of what I do with this podcast, if it gives somebody a reason to ask one more question whilst they're in a short appointment with their doctor, then, you know, it helps. Now, I know that one of the areas that you did find 
quite interesting information in was a book by this New York fertility specialist who kind of focused in more Eastern medicine, so acupuncture and Chinese medicine. I was a bit disappointed when I read about that you didn't have to have the disgusting tea because I was, you were <laughs> Oh, did you? It. You didn't miss anything. It was vile. Because I did acupuncture and I had Chinese medicine during my trying to get pregnant before I knew we actually were going to have fertility treatment and then continued with the acupuncture during it. So... I know you wrote to this author. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about that? I think we were still kind of in the beginning trying, kind of not trying, you know, when you're in that phase when you don't want to try too hard, you know, otherwise people will say, stop trying. It's not going to work if you try. And um, and we started maybe talking about some treatment we weren't sure. And then I, I stumbled on her book. Jill Blakeway is the author. I can't think of the title of the book. Do, do you know? I think it was Making Babies or something. Oh yes, making babies, and it's just got this yeah, this cute cover with a baby on her, on yeah on the cover, and um, what I loved about her philosophy was you have to get your body in order before you can think about falling pregnant. So so try and get healthy before you do anything else. There there are other there are technologies out there like IVF that that can really help you, but let's first focus on um, getting your body right, which I really like the sound of. Before I really obviously before I realized how how huge my my problems were, and so I started eating right and all of that and then what I loved about her philosophy she said IVF is a great tool but a lot of doctors use it for everything so for every problem you know IVF is the hammer and that that made a lot of sense to me and I didn't want to rush into any kind of invasive fertility treatment also because I was holding on to this idea that I really was fertile I was just a bit unlucky and you know you know all the stages of denial when you're infertile like I'm not really infertile I just have to try harder or change something in the meantime the the problems um, needed surgery and drugs and and IVF but um yeah so she was like my lifeline for a while and then I wrote to her and um being as being like a holistic infertility goddess and I told about my problem about my um, heart-shaped uterus um, and my endometriosis and asked what she would recommend and I really wasn't expecting a reply because I'm sure she gets um, hundreds of emails a day and um, it was a very short answer and she just said that she recommended surgery so that was um, that was very helpful for me because I, I thought if if Jill Blakeway recommends surgery then I don't have to uh, prevaricate any longer I mean it, it was a simple a simple uh, way forward then for me. And had those conversations already been happening with your gynecologist that surgery was the option that you should take and you were you were kind of against that or was it then you just went right come on let's talk about this I want to have surgery and this we're talking about surgery for the endometriosis at this point uh, for the endometriosis but also to fix the shape of my uterus because so it turned out that surgery. yes yeah it turned out that I didn't really have a heart-shaped uterus well it was heart-shaped but um, a, a heart-shaped uterus in medical terms is actually a bicorneate uterus which means two horns and it's, a, it's an extreme structural problem that you can't fix with surgery. That was what I was initially diagnosed with. But then when I started going to my fertility doctor, who I stayed with for the rest of my, my journey, and he was absolutely brilliant and I love him, he said, it's not bicorneate, it's, it's septate. And that means when the two halves of the uterus just have, haven't joined completely, um, congenitally, and there's a septum that can be removed. And once that septum, that's that dividing thing in your in your heart, that cleft, once that's removed, you have a kind of regular shaped uterus again. And, and that really helps when you're trying to fall pregnant. So that, that diagnosis changed a lot for me uh, because I went uh, from thinking that there's absolutely nothing I could do about this, this heart-shaped uterus 
that almost guaranteed miscarriage after miscarriage, um, I went to this um, this problem that really could be solved by surgery. So we uh, they operated on, um, on on the septate, they removed it, and then they also obviously ablated uh, all the endo they could find. They couldn't, it was a laparoscopy, so unfortunately they couldn't um, ablate all the endo on my diaphragm because um, that requires... Um, quite a lot more invasive surgery like proper um, cutting and that kind of thing so we went for the uh, the less invasive approach to begin with to see if that would work so reconstructive surgery now at this point do you think that you'd got pregnant and miscarried or do you just think you'd not managed to get pregnant um, no, now that I think about it, no, because I had such problems with my eggs. <laughs> I'm laying a lot on you here, Natalie. <laughs> I had so many different um, elements uh, of my fertility um, uh, were problematic, but I had very bad quality eggs. So the chances of falling pregnant with that and with the acidic cervical mucus and this and that and that, you know, I, I, I don't think I really stood a chance looking back. I don't think I stood a chance without the surgery and the drugs. And these different things you were discovering with your egg health and the cervical mucus, I mean, were these like one after the other or was quite a lot of time passing, you having more and more tests and then you'd find out another thing that wasn't playing, you know, in your favour? I think it, it gathered m- momentum quite quickly because in the beginning I was, as I said, like in denial. I didn't want to know, I didn't want to hear that I needed surgery. I didn't want to go for IVF. Um, I was I was really trying to to um, not go down that route and then so that just gathered momentum and then you know I met this amazing doctor and he was like listen you're not getting any younger <laughs> and how old were you at this point when you were having this kind of I was young <laughs> I thought I was young I was I was 30 right you know I thought I'd waited till the perfect time to start yeah. trying for babies you know 30 you mature enough you're in a good yeah. place anyway you know this doctor said we've got to we've got to we've got to go for this and if, if you really want this to happen and my goodness, I wanted it to happen. He's like, we've just got to go for it. And then we did. And then all the tests started, all the diagnosis started. And I remember um, being quite sad one day because it just seemed like I was getting bad news after bad news. It seemed like every single part of the conception process, my body had a problem with. And then I I was on a, an online support forum. We have a brilliant one in South Africa called uh, Fertility Care. And someone said to me, don't think of those diagnoses as um, as bad because really it's a step forward you are learning what the problem is and that's the only way you're going to solve it and that that was a big uh, mind shift for me too because all of a sudden I started seeing them as good things and then I think that's when I really started going for it that's really good advice and I know you talk about the forums that you used quite a lot in the book and I'm so pleased that you know you had that support even if it's not necessarily face to face but you know you've got that online community it was so helpful and you were adamant you weren't going to do IVF weren't you yes (laughs) I know that you had to have a number of cycles what I'm interested to know is that um, if I'm right between two and three they seem to do them back to back quite quickly is that right yes yes they did and and the advice around that so I mean just if you can give me an overview of between one and three the time frame we're looking at just to try and understand I think we did them all really very very close to one another Um, as soon as we realized the first one didn't work uh, we were booked in for the next one I think it must have been two or three months later and um, 
that was when my ovaries didn't respond at all to the stims and they gave they, they used to give me so many stims because my ovaries were just so lazy <laughs> that's why the book's called the underachieving ovary because re- my I think it was my left ovary was just it just never did anything it just never came to the party <laughs> so um so that's that IVF ca- uh, cycle was the second one was actually cancelled because I just didn't have any eggs I think I had like two two eggs and they didn't want to do a whole cycle with that I think we ended up doing turkey we used to call it turkey basting we did an um, artificial insemination for that one um, just to make the most of it but really it was a dud and then we did the third one again uh, very very close um, my, my doctor was really concerned about the quality of my eggs and he just wanted to to um, get it done as, as soon as possible while they were as fresh as possible. (laughs) So we've talked about egg health a little bit and you in the book were saying, you know, who'd have thought that was the thing? You know, how can your egg health not be good? But were you then given advice or did you seek advice on how to improve your egg health? Was there any discussion about supplements and different things that you could do with your environment and your lifestyle? I know you've talked about the changes you made with your diet previously, but were you able to get access to people that understood more about egg health? Um, I did a lot of research, um, also a lot of um, help from the forum but but at that time there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot you could do for egg health well that was the kind of common uh, knowledge because your eggs are your eggs you're born with them and and there's nothing really you can do to rejuvenate them they're just they're as old as they are um, but having said that uh, on my I think it was my yeah it was the third IVF the doctor said listen we're just going to throw everything we can at this and if you like you can try this um, the supplement that um, I have absolutely no scientific proof that it works and it's very expensive. But if you'd like to try it, so we have had some. <laughs> no, here you go. <laughs> yeah, we have had some success with it. So I don't know. And we're like, of course we'll take it. You know, we've already paid for three IVFs. We're just gonna, you know, let's just go all in. And we'll be back with Janice in just a moment after we hear from a note from my brilliant sponsors. The Fertility Podcast is supported by OvuSense. If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, OvuSense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class two medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and it fits like a tampon so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. You use it at night whilst you sleep and then in the morning you simply remove, wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now OvuSense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit OvuSense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey and you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. There were two things actually. The one was pycnogenol. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, but I love that you wrote it phonetically so I was about to say it to you and I love that you describe it as the champagne of supplements and I want to understand more. (laughs) Because it's so darn expensive and it's from... (laughs) <laughs> not that it was such a wonderful feeling every time you had it <laughs> no <laughs> I wish <laughs> it's made from French pine bark which sounds wonderful <laughs> and um, it has all these lovely advantages of um, and benefits and um, my father-in-law uh, when, when, I, when I sent through my email to my friends and family updating them saying that I'm going to be the guinea pig 
with pycnogenol and something else and told him what pycnogenol was, uh, he said that he would like some too. <laughs> because am I right in saying your father-in-law had been diagnosed with cancer whilst you were on this journey? Yes, he was, yeah. And he was He's passed away a shining now. light. He's passed away. Yes. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Because he was a, Thank quite you. a shining light, wasn't he, during the he, time where you He were was so riches. wonderful. He was so wonderful. He was so supportive. And um, yeah, he just basically made me feel better about everything. He lent us money when we were down and he was just wonderful. And so the pycnogenol, because I, I first, when I read it, I thought it was helping you deal with the pain with the endometriosis, but is that not right? It was helping with the egg health. Um, it actually, because it has all these wonderful benefits, you see, <laughs> it's helped with both because it helps with inflammation. So that helped with my endometriosis and uh, which I was still battling with um, um even though I had that surgery because they couldn't reach um, all the endo that um, was there. Because you described as well the challenge it put on your relationship with your husband when you were like screaming at him for pain relief and he'd kind of hold back as you were trying to justify the time frame between, but then he, he just succumbed to your shouts, it seems. <laughs> I shouldn't have put him in that position, but um, I didn't know how else to handle it because I really, I think I would have overdosed a few times because I was just so desperate. I mean, I was in so much pain and the pain pills were there and, you know, I just, all reason kind of flies off the window when you're in that position. I can imagine. And so the pycnogenol was a, quite a game changer for you. I think, I think it's, it, it might have been helpful. Um, it was supposed to help with inflammation and the, and the ovary quality, uh, egg quality. And I was also taking something else. Um, oh, I wish I could think of the name. Anyway, it was also for egg health. And uh, when I think of the name, I'll send it to you if you do show notes. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I can't say that those were the things that changed the game because we don't actually know. Yes, we did exactly the same thing with the in the third IVF as we did with the first two, and we had different results. Um, so, you know, there's so many factors every time. I mean, it's impossible to say, like, why did I not produce any eggs with the second IVF but produced, I think it was, uh, 12 with the third um, when when really everything was exactly the same. I was I was already taking those supplements for that second IVF, by the way. So it wasn't the it wasn't the supplements. Yeah, you never really know, but and, and I was doing reflexology throughout. Okay. And I think if you I mean my advice to people who ask me is just do everything you can because you never know what what that thing what that tipping point is gonna be. You just don't know. Yeah, I mean I've had all sorts of different conversations where somebody said sometimes it's like this kind of combination lock that you're trying to work out and you know one little turn and it, and it and it happens and it works and you know the other argument is that there isn't the kind of scientific proof about different holistic treatments but then if it makes you feel better I mean I felt that the acupuncture that I did ahead and during and post you know my my transfer for me with my mindset really helps I think like you say you just at the point I mean you describe the cost as being you describe fertility treatment as being a bit like gambling um, and, and how addictive it is that, you know, you just put everything at it. What, what's the situation in South Africa with any assistance with funding? Oh, we don't. There, there is none. It's all privately funded. Yes. And the counselling along the way, I know you've talked about the forums. Did the pair of you sit in front of any counsellor through your fertility clinic at any point? I saw a counsellor in the beginning when I realised that I wasn't really coping with um, the, the string of hard-to-hear diagnoses. Yeah. I went to see a lady and uh, she was very helpful. She didn't, she didn't really know anything about, um, about infertility. Um, she was a recommendation uh, from a friend of mine. Right. We saw her for other reasons. But, but it was good, you know, to go there and just to talk it out because you can't always um, tell your husband everything uh, because 
everything you say has an effect. So I didn't want him to feel like um, like I was losing hope or you don't always want the consequences of, of everything you say out loud because <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure um, how, to, how to say this really, but I didn't want to bring him down to my level because at, at that stage I was feeling really, really down about things. And I didn't want him to lose hope because hope is the, it's, I was going to say it's the most important thing, but actually it's everything because if you don't have hope, then, you know, why bother? I actually wish that someone, I I wish that infertile people could be told in the beginning of their journey whether it was going to work or not, because if you know it's going to work, then it's much easier to spend all your savings and get up at four in the morning to go to a clinic and wait in line for three hours and miss work and miss friends and just to get through it all because you know that you're going to get what you want at the end of it. But it's the not knowing. It's so difficult, the not knowing. Oh, that killed me. Yeah. And your third round was successful. Um, Little James entered the world and... Is James your only child or have you since had more? Because I know that there was some discussion about adoption. Um, I didn't know whether that was what might be your next route. Where, where are you with your family now? Where, where well, are you with your family now? Um, we had James and, and the doctor, our fertility doctor said to us, if you want another child, come as soon as possible. He said, breastfeed that baby for six months and come back onto treatment. So that was the plan. We were going to do that because we really wanted... Um, two children and then when James arrived he was so it was so amazing to have this child that I'd wanted for so long and he was just everything to me and and all of a sudden the the like perfect design of a family in my head of two parents and two kids kind of fell away and I was just so enamored with him and I thought it's enough like I've tried so hard and and done so much to have this baby and he's perfect and that yeah, you know, that other stuff fell away, and I wasn't going to go for more fertility treatment at that stage. I was just, um, I was just enjoying having him, and and yeah, life seemed really good, and so I didn't take the doctor's advice, and I left it um, for I think it was a year, and then Mike and I started talking about maybe going back, but I really didn't want to. I, fertility, I found fertility treatment so hard, and. And I was happy, you know. So um, anyway, we started talking about maybe we should go back, maybe we should go back. And then and then I found out I was pregnant. Wow, that's amazing news. Amazing news. <laughs> oh, no, I couldn't, I, I honestly couldn't believe it because it, it was so difficult the first time to fall pregnant spontaneously. I just, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. And um, yeah, it's just, it actually, it, it, it blew me away I think for a whole week I just couldn't think straight I just yeah anyway so yeah I was pregnant again and then I had a a healthy little boy and then I had two beautiful little boys (laughs) and yeah I mean I still look at them and I can't believe my luck and you won't believe what happened next (laughs) go on (laughs) so I stopped taking the pill because why bother when you are so damn infertile and uh, when my second son turned 18 months I fell pregnant again naturally and I find it very difficult to explain sorry and 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 it was a successful pregnancy and I have and I have a beautiful baby daughter (laughs) but I find it so hard to understand how it could have happened 
because of all the problems up front. But I guess I did have um, those surgeries. I mean, I had two surgeries, three surgeries. And, um, and the breastfeeding of pregnancy does keep the endometriosis at bay. Right. So that does, that does explain two of the big three problems I had. But the, the egg quality thing, I mean, I don't know. It's very difficult to explain. I, I just, uh, I still, every day, even though having um, three kids under six is very challenging, <laughs> I'm not going to complain about it. Uh, I just, honestly, I can't believe my luck when I look at, when I look at my brood, my gang, yeah. you know. So what's the age gap between your kids? It's exactly two years uh, right. between uh, all three of them, yeah. Right. And during that time, did you carry on with the pycnogenol? No, I stopped okay. um, I stopped the pycnogenol as soon as I fell pregnant with James. Okay. And what about your, your diet generally? Did you stick to trying to be good as much as we can be? No. Okay. So I, it's not no. that. It's nothing about your lifestyle. <laughs> okay. Just trying to put it out there. So you're eating awful food and you won't do any of the things your doctor said where you managed to fall pregnant actually twice. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't have... <laughs> I don't have a terrible diet. I have a reasonably healthy diet, but you know, I, I eat gluten and sugar and all those bad things that you're not supposed to eat. Um, I have a glass of wine every now and then, you know, it's, I certainly am not on a health kick. Certainly yeah. not. So your main advice, I know you've said about hope and knowing, you know, from the start, if your outcome is going to be what you'd hoped. I mean, your main advice from from what was a, a really hard journey with the, the, the reconstructive surgery in itself, massively overwhelming, the endometriosis in itself, a huge thing to deal with, then failed cycles. That was cycles. the hardest thing, yeah. Pain-wise now, what happens? Um, I haven't had any pain since I fell pregnant with James, which was six years ago. Amazing. Okay. Okay. It's it's incredible when I think of what a what a um, what a force in my life it was, what a destructive force it was, and I don't have any of it now. Um, and and now if I get it, I can go back on the pill. So, yeah, I'm so grateful for that. I can't say how grateful I am. So, your main advice to anybody who is identified with any of the things that you've been through, what would you say? Um, I would say keep trying, because uh, sometimes you. Uh, along the way you feel like you well let me first say if you are really committed to to the idea of having a baby then keep trying if you're not really sure if you've ever wanted a kid maybe that's a different story but I knew from when I was very very little that I wanted to be a mother and I was committed to it and I just kept going you know no matter what no matter what the doctor said um, no matter how bad my finances were looking I just kept going because I've never wanted anything as much as I've wanted a baby. So if you are that committed, then I say go for it and and you'll get there eventually, you know, whether uh, you, you become pregnant or whether you go um, the adoption route or something else, um, just, you know, just go for it and it'll be worth it. It, it will be worth it. <laughs> That's my best advice. And as far as your book, because you've got the Kindle edition and you were saying to me that you've been doing an audiobook version of it. Oh, yes. So who who should read your book or listen to your book? I think anyone who is battling with um, infertility, uh, endometriosis, uh, anything to do with um, your lazy ovaries. <laughs> and anyone who maybe just wants a bit of a light read because infertility can be such a serious um, and taboo subject for a lot of people. And sometimes you just want, uh, you know, it's not like it's a light read, but um, I, there is some humor in it. And I think that if you feel like you could do with 
just someone who kind of who's been there who knows what it's like and with a light touch of humor then the book would probably be good for you because I've covered in my podcast before about uh, the kind of laughter associated with infertility, speaking to an author and a, a filmmaker on that very point that it is so overwhelming. And I think you make an amazing point there. And you haven't really done yourself justice in the way that you write. It is very comedic. You, your, your kind of use of language is, is, is very funny. Um, and there's a couple of things that I just wanted to mention before we say goodbye about the book um, that I particularly liked. And that was the shortness of the chapters because there's something quite rewarding about finishing a chapter. I don't know whether it seemed that way on my Kindle. Oh, no, no, short chapters. Yeah, that's how I write. 60 chapters or 80 chapters in it, haven't you? So to give you an idea, it's not a humongous book, but they are pretty short chapters. So you kind of feel like you're getting through it. Not, not that you want to get through it, but it's quite nice to see the different... You're very concise. Word economy, I like. Um... And the other thing that I just wanted to pick up on, because I actually read it out to my husband um, when I was reading it, was you were talking about in your third uh, attempt at IVF about this um, Israeli research about this medical clown, which I thought was the most hilarious image. So just to share that, because before I let you go, because I wonder whether you did visualise that and whether that helped, because that was your successful cycle. Yeah, I mean, I was doing so much research at that at that stage, and quite a few things I read said that um, humour and laughter has been proven to yeah. to up the success of IVF. And you think, that can't possibly be true, but you know, it's science, so you believe it. And I told Mike that he has to tell me jokes while we... Um, in the transfer room and um yeah i mean that that, it's not funny enough (laughs) and he did actually end up telling quite a good joke and i and i laughed uh, at at exactly the wrong moment and the doctor said just hang on (laughs) and and then you know there was like this panic oh no where what's going on and then the embryo was in and we're like sure okay don't worry you can laugh now (laughs) so that was um probably i probably laughed at exactly the wrong time but you know that's the one that worked so you never know <laughs> but no no medical clowns for me thank you because this idea was that that the israeli research had shown that there were the women were told to visualize a clown or there was actually a clown no there was actually there a, was clown. a clown and uh, you know if clowns aren't scary enough it's a medical clown <laughs> so a, a clown in scrubs yeah. with like blood dripping down i mean it sounds awful we had stories in the uk of cr- clowns terrorizing i think they had them in the states as well this kind of clown that was terrorizing people especially if you've got a phone Imagine if you've got a clown phobia and someone decides to send in a clown at the point of egg collection. Not, not a good idea. <laughs> but I mean, who doesn't have a clown phobia? I mean, everyone I know has a clown phobia. If you read it or watched the movie yeah. and then there's that, uh, that gassy, gacy guy who stresses a clown. No, 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 I'm not interested. <laughs> I wouldn't rate that research, but I think it was a very funny inclusion in in your book well you need to look it's been really lovely chatting to you and best of luck with the book and um i know are you back to writing again is what's next yes i'm um you know since since publishing that book i've become addicted to um being an indie author and it's 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 another thing that's just kind of um changed my life it's got i've gone on a tangent and i've published all the books that i had sitting in my drawer and i have i think six or seven books out now and i'm busy on on my next one so it's been fantastic. <laughs> At the moment, I'm, I'm writing the third installment of a futuristic thriller that I started a long time ago, I think um, seven or eight years ago. So that's, that's what I'm writing at the moment. But I am going to also write a follow-up to the Ovary book because um, so many people ask me, they see pictures of my kids on Facebook and they say, but 
you know, that like the book doesn't add up when you see the my, my gang of toddlers. And so I think I must just write a, a couple of bonus chapters about uh, what happened afterwards. And yeah, I'll probably need to work on that next. Oh, we look forward to it. Well, we'll put all the links to your book and um, your social media and stuff on the show notes for this. And I know you said you'd send me a link to the South African forum. I think that'd be good to include the support forum. That'd be really good. And, and that other supplement that I couldn't think of. And the other supplement that you can't remember the name of. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, look, you have a lovely day and great to chat. And I look forward to uh, just hearing what next. Maybe don't have any more children for a little while. Maybe give your body a little rest. <laughs> no, that ship rest. has sailed. No more children. All right, Janita, you take care. Thanks, Natalie. You too. You. Bye. Bye. So to find out more about Janita, about how you can get hold of her book and follow her on social media, just go to the show notes for this episode, which are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash ovary. Now, there's a number of points that Janita raised on her journey. One thing in particular that I'm quite interested in finding out from you if you've experienced is having multiple cycles quite close together, whether you felt you were pushed into that from your clinic or whether that was your choice, whether it was successful or not. Um, So do let me know if you've had um, more than one cycle and the, the period between them has been quite full on just be interesting to get an idea of whether it's something you advise or whether in hindsight you wish you'd given yourself and your body and your, your mind a bit more time so just drop me a line natalie at the fertility which is the best way to get in touch with me if you've got any feedback any questions i always love hearing from you um if i don't get back to you straight away do forgive me also you can follow me on twitter and instagram at fertility and if you've got time to get yourself to itunes to subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it then that's massively helpful because it means that uh, the podcast gets a bit more prominent and other people hopefully find it so i hope this has been of interest to you and take care until the next time 